Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. For those that know me, this connection between politics and music is natural. So each week, I'll be speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and musicians about what's at stake in this seismic moment of cultural change. Thanks for joining me for a very special episode of Politics of Truth. This week, I'm once again joined by Bob Costa, national political reporter for The Washington Post, and we're thrilled to be speaking with former Senator Harry Reid of Nevada. For more than 30 years on the job, Senator Reid earned a reputation as an absolutely ferocious negotiator, which led to him serving two terms as Senate Majority Leader from 2007 to 2015. For nearly his whole term as Majority Leader, Senator Reid faced an opposition party dead set against every legislative priority he put forth. Even in the midst of the worst financial crisis in a century and multiple wars overseas, despite that blanket opposition, Senator Reid was able to pass critical legislation like the Affordable Care and Dodd-Frank Acts, which stabilized the health and financial sectors at a pivotal time for the country. He's someone I've respected enormously as long as I've been following politics, and I'm honored to speak with him today. On this episode, we talked to Senator Reid about his friendship with the late civil rights icon John Lewis his favorite music, his thoughts on the Department of Homeland Security, and what a lifetime in politics taught him about life. Although Senator Reid may no longer be in the arena, he's still in the fight. Robert Costa, welcome back to the Politics of Truth. Senator Harry Reid, it's an honor to have you with us, sir. Thank you very much. Senator Reid, as we all get together uh, right at this moment, uh, our nation is mourning the loss of John Lewis, a civil rights icon and representative from the state of Georgia. Can you give us any personal recollections on, uh, on the representative? I came to the House in 82, came to the Senate in 86. That's when he came to the House. During his first week there, I asked if I could have a meeting with him to go over one of his books. It's called The March, I think is the name of it. And... Um, I'd marked places in the book that I wanted to talk to him about, and I did that. And he was so personable, so much humility, that we developed a very, very good relationship. And he loved Las Vegas. He didn't have a lot of money to gamble, but what he could afford, he gambled a little bit. His wife loved it out here. And so I always tried to get events for him out here, so he had an excuse to come to Vegas. One more thing, the Pettus Bridge I had the good fortune of walking hand in hand with him over that bridge. And he, during the time that he was talking to me, he told me, he said, I had a backpack, I had an apple and a book because I thought I might be arrested. And he said, right over there was a drugstore and a bunch of white guys making fun of us. And he said, right after that, they came, the stormtroopers came and beat him within an inch of his life. Uh, So I kept in touch with, I talked to him a week ago, a week before he died, he was very sick. I, uh, I don't want to get real personal about this, but uh, John Lewis is somebody that I prayed for every night. John Lewis. To me, he's an icon. He's a national treasure. You rarely find someone iconic like him who is so filled with humility. Senator Reid, when you think about your own upbringing in Searchlight, 
What has race meant to you over the years and how do you think the country has handled it? And where are we today? I think we've handled it very poorly. There have been a couple of signs that I think are really good. These marches, which uh, have been so important, and the reason the march has been educational for me is half the marchers are white people. I think that's wonderful. So we still have a long, long way to go with race. But I do think that, and all the polls backing up, that uh, everyone acknowledges we haven't done very well on race. And people want to do better. And that's what we're trying to do now. And I think that's really very, very important. Senator Reid, I just want to get a quick comment from you about what's happening in Portland right now. If you were a sitting senator today and Homeland Security, uh, I guess Customs and Border Patrol, unmarked troops were in Las Vegas and clashing with rioters in Las Vegas, what would you do about it? Would you try to seek a court injunction, especially if you were in the minority party? What would be at your disposal to force those troops to leave Vegas? First of all, let's talk about the mayor. The mayor is uh, educated as well as anybody could be educated. He's a Harvard, Yale, Columbia, and also climbed Mount Everest. It's pretty good qualifications for me, at least. Um, I wish I here today would say, you know, Russ Feingold, when he was in the Senate, when the Department of Homeland Security was brought up to create this new agency, Russ Feingold said, in years to come, people are going to be talking about this being this is a bunch of thugs and policemen that are going to do nothing but harm to our country. As I said, I wish I could say, Russ, I voted with you. I didn't. I did not. But he was a visionary and he saw what it would amount to. And he was right. Part of homeless security is an unnecessary part of our government. And Trump has used it to his benefit to stir up diversion away from the coronavirus and his other failings. So that's how I feel about the Department of Homeless Security. Senator Reid, the obvious question everyone asks in Washington these days is, who is Vice President Biden going to pick as his running mate? But I, I want to ask you a little bit of a different question. You've been a friend of his for years, a colleague. How do you think he approaches this decision in terms of his political calculation and the personal dynamic? Well, first of all, there's no one better qualified to pick a vice presidential running mate than he. He was vice president for eight years. He longtime member of the Senate, head of the Judiciary Committee, head of foreign relations. So he understands the workings of government. And he's already said he's going to pick a woman. Beyond that, he's not made a decision who he's going to pick. But he's approached this in a very, very cautious way. He first of all picked his friend, uh, Chris Dodd, to kind of help him work his way through these people. I talked to Chris. He's done this with as much uh, devotion as he could. And I use that word purposely. He's trying to do his best for the country and for Joe Biden. And he's in the process now that the uh, number of people that he's suggested would be okay has been whittled down to, I understand, about six people. And the vice president will have to make that choice. And as I repeat, it's going to be a woman. And beyond that, he has made no commitment. Senator Reid, I'd love to talk to you now about your love of music, and in particular, The Grateful Dead. Well, I have in my rooms here a picture. Every member of The Grateful Dead signed it. It's a poster. I became very close to Mickey Hart. Mickey Hart, I first met. I was uh, 
a fairly new member of the Senate. And David Pryor had a heart attack. He was chairman of the aging committee. And he asked me if I would hold a hearing, conduct a hearing that he had already scheduled. And I didn't want to do it. I was busy, but he's such a nice man. And I said, okay, I'll be happy to do that, Mr. Chairman. So that's where I met Mickey Hart. It was a wonderful hearing. We had panelists. We had uh, the famous uh, drummer, the Grateful Dead, Mickey Hart. We had uh, Theodore Bikel, stage, screen, radio. He was there. We had Oliver Sacks, the man that wrote the book uh, Awakening so, and wrote since then seven or eight books, all bestsellers. And that was, that was a panel. For me, it was really tremendous. We learned there that music can be therapeutic. And we, as a result of that hearing, we made part of the Older Americans Act that Medicare would cover music therapy for patients because we know it works. So that's how I got to know Mickey Hart and the Grateful Dead. I brought Mickey Hart home for lunch one day. My kids, teenagers, were, they were teenagers then. They were so excited. Here was Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead. And I went to a number of their concerts. I always was on stage back where nobody could see me. But this was uh, one of the uh, loves of my life. I love music. I go to bed every night and I listen to music until I get go to sleep. So what do you listen to? Oh, I've been listening lately to Lyle Lovett. I like, I think he's very good. I uh, have been listening to, because they have such great harmony, a group called the Weavers. Uh, they were very, very popular. And uh, they were blackballed because of a communist uh, Un-American Activities Committee of the House. So they were out of work for a long time. And that's where the lead singer took up his banjoing. So he was the number one banjo player you know, of all time. Was that Pete Seeger? Pete Seeger, yes, absolutely. But I, I listened to the Weavers because their harmony is so good. And I also, if you listen to them, you will hear one a woman's voice. It is a booming voice, booming voice, great voice. And I learned her name was Ronnie Gilbert. And so I'm taking a people mover from the airport to the the way they had it in Washington at the time to get, get on the plane. And there I see Ronnie Gilbert. So I went over to her and I'm sure it was obnoxious, but I said, Ronnie Gilbert? Yes. I told her how much I admired her and how I could hear her, hear her voice among all the men. Anyway, I love music and uh, I listen to music every chance I get. I must have on my phone I have no doubt have at least a couple thousand songs. Senator Reed, what are your memories of seeing some of the famous musicians in Las Vegas over the decades? Well, I never met Elvis Presley, but I watched his show as a young man. Uh, we had Johnny Cash. My first memory of Johnny Cash, it was a bachelor party for one of my friends. And uh, he made a fool of himself, got drunk, and we were at the police called the Showboat Hotel. and. So the party ended quickly. So we went to the coffee shop to have something to eat. And there was Johnny Cash sitting there alone, very skinny, black hair. Uh, but I was too shy to go up and introduce myself. But those experiences in Las Vegas you can have because people are always cycling through Las Vegas. Hey, 
Hey everybody, I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I've tried every razor blade on the market and I finally found the best one for me and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five blade razor, with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. Senator, what is your day like now? Do you miss the Senate? And what is a day in the life of Harry Reid like today? Well, first of all, I was in Washington for 37 years. I was in Congress for 34. I was back there going to law school for three years. So I spent a lot of my life in Washington. And the 34 years I was in Congress, every day was a good day for me. I enjoyed it. I found it scintillating. I found it fun. I enjoyed the hard work. But that was then and this is now. I don't try to um, step on Senator Schumer's toes at all. I help him when he asks me for help. But I try to protect him as much as I can. And I'm not trying, you know, that was then and this is now. And I am satisfied with that. So what do I do on a normal day? Let's talk about today. I've already had an interview with the New York Times dealing with the speed train between Southern Nevada and Southern California. I am uh, doing this interview with you. I've got one later with uh, someone who's going to interview me on coronavirus in Las Vegas. I got about sometime early afternoon, I think at one o'clock, I've got a trainer, physical therapist come by. I uh, really lead a pretty pleasant life with the coronavirus thing. I don't go around people very much. Uh, the main times I have to go around people is when I'm doing my medical stuff. Do you ever talk to Vice President Biden and give him a little advice? I talk to Steve Rochetti all the time. You know, he's his chief of staff. I haven't talked to Joe for at least a month, but uh, Joe Biden is just who he is. Some people writing a book about me have oh. done a documentary about me. And I was looking at that yesterday, giving them my impression how they're doing. And one of the features of that is Joe Biden coming to me and say, love you, pal. That's Joe Biden. Love you, pal. That's, that's who he is. So I admire him so much for all the struggles through life. He's had many of them. And uh, he's a man of wisdom. And compared to what we have with Donald Trump, he's just a, got a lot of work to do to rewrite the wrongs of this country. Do you think the Democrats will take the Senate this fall? Yeah, I think this is going to be a change election. I think that uh, Trump's going to be beaten very badly. I think we're going to win in Colorado, Montana, Maine. We're going to win in North Carolina. I think we have a shot at the blue seat in Georgia. We're going to win in Arizona. We're competitive in Alaska. And even though it's a long shot, I, I check on it every day and it's, it doesn't look any worse. We have a real shot in Kansas. So then what would your advice be for a potential leader Schumer? Chuck doesn't need much direction from me. You know, he's, I like to think that I helped him uh, work into this job. You know, he was extremely important to me. He was my DSCC chair twice. He was always part of my leadership team. And uh, he 
Durbin and Murray were part of my leadership team. I never made a decision unless I ran it past them. Sometimes I would have the three of them come to my office four or five times a day. Because when I went into my larger leadership meeting on Monday, I want to make sure that they were all backing me. And then if that Monday evening meeting went well, we were all set for the Tuesday morning, much bigger leadership meeting. And then we were all set to do the caucus at noon. So Chuck's been well-trained. He's done a good job. He's a, but a lot, one, some people don't understand how smart he is. It is hard to find a person who's gotten a perfect score on the SAT and also a perfect score on the law school aptitude exam. But Schumer got perfect scores on both of them. What about Senator Reid, the legacy of your former, former rival across the aisle, Senate Majority Leader McConnell? His allies always tell me his legacy is going to be the overhaul of the federal judiciary. Do you see it that way or do you see a different legacy for him? I think that the uh, Republicans with Trump have done everything they can to denigrate and damage the United States Senate. I wrote an op-ed in New York Times several months ago saying it's not a question if the filibuster's going away, it's when it's going away. It's gone. It's going to be history. And next year at this time, we'll be having a Senate with no filibuster. Now, that's okay, because we'll still have a bicameral legislature, six-year terms, and a Senate, two-year terms in the House. That will be okay. But I think that the legacy of Senator McConnell and the Republican senators under Trump have been a bunch of wimps. They do nothing. They do nothing unless they feel comfortable that Trump's not going to say something about them. And, you know, I always felt, you know, I was a leader for quite a long time, majority leader, minority leader. And as a member of the Senate, I was trained early on with Robert Byrd, always taught me, you do not work for the president. You work. You work with the president. We're a separate, equal branch of government. And you, we do not have to do what he wants us to do. The Constitution gives us equal power. Well, that's how I've always looked at uh, my dealings with the president. But obviously, McConnell and his boys feel they're beholden to him. If the Democrats take the presidency, the House and the Senate this fall, do you think it's important for the Democrats to use their at least two years of power to put checks, more checks on the presidency to prevent a Trump takeover in the future? Or what should be the agenda if the Democrats have all three branches of government? I would hope that the first two years, they wouldn't waste their time on that. If you look at a presidential term, Obama had eight years, but his status as a president was determined during his first two years of president because it was during those two years we developed. We got Affordable Care Act, Dodd-Frank, all the good work we did on public lands, national service, the things that he was able to get done that first two years determined how the history books will be written about him, and they'll be written very favorably. So I would hope that uh, President Biden takes that as a cue, that he needs those first two years to get things done that need to be done and not worry about uh, another Trump coming along. Senator Reid, I asked you about Elvis, and you talked about Johnny Cash, but I also wonder, looking back, President Trump used to spend years in Vegas, or he would go visit his hotel there. I'm curious about your own interactions with him, maybe in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s. Did you ever see him as a political player? And when he started to rise, were you surprised? I have an office in Bellagio Hotel. It's really a nice office, but it's kind of a joke. I have a 
framed letter from Donald Trump telling my, it's awesome. That was a really awesome that uh, I was elected, reelected. So uh, Donald Trump did fundraisers for me in his beautiful home in high rise in New York, uh, gold gilding, and I guess all gilding is gold, but in his roof, ceiling, I'm sorry. So I've had quite a few dealings with Donald Trump. And did I ever think he was going to become a politician of any kind? No. But I'm with the majority of people. No one thought four years ago this guy would become president. Can you foresee the future of the Republican Party after President Trump? I've said, and I repeat to you, I am a believer in the two-party system. The two-party system we have had for the last 100 years in America, 80 years in America, has given us strength. We are the envy of the rest of the world. You try to form a government in Great Britain, you have little tiny parties you have to deal with. Israel, same thing. France. In America, we don't have to do that. So I'm a believer in the two-party system. I think that the Republican Party, what they stood for, to me, was um, John Chafee from Rhode Island, Danforth from Missouri, Hatfield from Oregon. All these stunningly important people who helped maintain the two-party system. And I think that Trump has really damaged the brand of the Republican Party. And obviously, I'm not the only one that feels that way. The Lincoln Project and all the other Republicans who are raising money, running these terrific ads against Trump, also understand that he's ruined their brand and that they're going to have to get rid of the Trump Republican Party and come out with the new Republican Party, which I hope they do. You've been a fierce critic over the years, Senator Reid, of Senator Romney. Has your view of him changed at all over the past year during impeachment and his vote? I called uh, the former Secretary of Health and Human Services, um, Mike Levitt. I said, Mike, I've got some business up in Salt Lake. I want you to arrange a meeting for me to talk to Mitt Romney. And we met, the two of us met. My wife was there, his wife was there. And we just talked about how our advocacy for the positions we stood for was over the little bit too much. And uh, I've since then become a big fan of Mitt Romney. Every chance I get to be able to say something good about him, I do it. And obviously, he is one of the few Republicans that feels strongly about having a strong Republican Party. I mean, he's the only person in the history of our country who voted to impeach a member of his own political party. So I admire Mitt Romney, and uh, we both agreed we let bygones be bygones and move on. That's what we've tried to do. Senator Reid, what is the greatest threat facing the United States today? We have many. What is the greatest? Well, the number one issue we have facing us now is the coronavirus. It's a pandemic. The news coming out of Oxford the last few days is that they already have something that builds your immunity system against the virus. That's the number one problem we have. The number two problem is climate change. I can see here in Nevada, southern Nevada, how the climate has changed in my lifetime. And it's changing this way all over the world. We have places now with our military bases in southern part of Virginia. The base has to close almost every day, the lower part of it, because the water's coming in so much. Miami is just having a very difficult time because every day water's coming in on the streets, and there's some of the big condos, not big condos, but expensive condos. So climate change is the number one issue after we take care of coronavirus. No question about it. 
It's a worldwide problem, and we have to do something about it before it's too late. And it won't be long before it's too late. Senator, just one final question is, you've had such an, a storied and an amazing political career to work closely with presidents and senators, to be majority leader of the United States Senate. We all know about your humble beginnings and searchlight and, and how you rose to power. Now that you have this time in your life where you're paying attention to everything, of course, but you do have some time to sit back and not be totally in the arena 24-7, though you're still in the arena, you'll never leave it. What do you think about when you look back after everything you've seen, all the fights you've had, the ups and downs, what do you think about at this point in your life, politically and personally? Well, I think that uh, my outlook on life and politics is if you have an enemy, do everything you had to make him a friend. And I've lived by that. I was high and mighty. I was headed for the United States Senate as 29 or 30 years old. I was unbeatable. I got beat. Paul Axel beat me. Uh, and I came right back and ran for mayor and lost that one too. But next time I ran, all Axel people were my, they're on my side. They were uh, Reed supporters. That's how I always tried to look at things. And uh, when I was in the Congress, both in the House and the Senate, that was what I tried to do. If I was having problems with somebody. What could I do to try to make them my friend? And, uh, I tried not to be too overt about this, tried to do it the right way, but I think it's, it's helped me over the years. It doesn't do any good to hold a grudge. I am very fortunate. I, I don't know if I could hold a grudge, but I don't hold a grudge, so I don't know if I could hold one or not because I've never held a grudge. I really, honestly, have no uh, ill feelings toward anyone. Well, Senator, thank you so much for your time today. We'll let you get on with the rest of your day. We know you have a lot of, lot on your schedule, even though you're not uh, full-time in the Senate. Like Bob said, you will always be in the arena. And I'll always appreciate this time I've had with all of you today. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Bob. I'm so glad to, to uh, listen to your music. You know, I have a son-in-law from North Carolina. He and his family are in love with the Alvett brothers. So where are they from in, in North Carolina? Ever heard of Kannapolis? Uh, yeah. That's where they're from. So the brothers are right next door in Concord. Scott and Seth live in Concord, so it's right there. And Oh, and, really? Yeah. Will you tell, tell them how much we love their music? Well, thank you so much. And it's a great honor, and uh, hopefully we can get back to Vegas and, and see you in person uh, before too long. Before that would be long. great. I'll come to the concert. I hope you all have a blessed day. Thank you. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com. Osiris Pod.